Hello and welcome to a new episode of Material Matters with me, Grant Gibson. We're on Series 8, so as regular listeners will know, the idea behind the show is that I speak to a designer, maker, artist or architect about a material or technique with which they're intrinsically linked and discover how it changed their lives and careers. The Covid virus is still running rife and at the time of recording we're once again about to go into lockdown in England. That being the case, we thought it prudent to record this episode over the internet. But regardless of everything that's going on, it gives me huge pleasure to meet the artist Phoebe Cummings. Ceramics has completely informed how I think. The way that I write is part of a ceramic practice, so is that still ceramics? Now Phoebe's chosen material is clay, and she uses it in its raw form, so unfired and unglazed, for sculptures that are usually site-specific. Inspired by nature, either real or imagined, her pieces are ornate, fragile, and often decay over time giving them a kind of wistful dynamism. The writer Imogen Greenhow has described them rather lyrically as holding bays for her thoughts and ideas. This is Clea's performance art, but perhaps most importantly, in her hands, the material becomes extremely beautiful. Phoebe was the winner of the British Ceramics Biennale Award in 2011, picked up the Women's Hour Craft Prize in 2017 for a fountain entitled Triumph of the Immaterial, and was a finalist of the Arts Foundation's 25th Anniversary Awards in 2018. She's had exhibitions at the Museum of Arts and Design in New York, a solo show at the University of Hawaii, and residencies at Camden Arts Centre and the V&A, amongst other places. Phoebe, thanks so much for doing this. Oh, thank you. It's good to talk to you. So as we record this, England is about to go into lockdown. I think it's safe to say 2020 has been a difficult year. How have you coped? Has it affected your practice? Yeah, I mean, I think like everyone, it's had a huge impact um, on everything this year. And um, particularly, I've got two young children, age five and eight. So they were at home for a lot of that time. They're back at school at the moment. How is the home teaching? A challenge, I guess. There's been really (laughs) good things about it as well. And, you know, we had a lot of fun and definitely our Home curriculum was quite art heavy, I would say. (laughs) (laughs) I also work at the University of Westminster and kind of trying to balance that work and bits of my own work and the kids as well was the hardest thing, I think, to kind of find your way through all those different roles that you have to do. Yeah. I mean, how has it worked at University of Westminster? Because presumably you're teaching, you can't be teaching or you couldn't have been teaching very practically for a long period of time, I'm guessing. Yeah, and I guess at the time when lockdown began, we were sort of coming towards the end of the main teaching period. So that gave us some time to plan. At the moment, the teaching is kind of a combination of, for me, mostly online, but then there is access on site as well. And then part of my role is also research. So that's kind of been maybe more straightforward to continue online and Often I would work from home doing that anyway and then having online meetings. So that was a bit easier to translate, I guess, than the teaching. Yeah. What are you researching? So we have um, a ceramics research centre there. So working closely with Claire Toomey and Tessa Peters and Christy Brown. And I guess broadly we're interested in the relationships between clay culture and society. And my own personal research within that at the moment is really focusing a lot on recording and collecting the ephemeral and kind of looking more in depth really at the way that I document and record the works that I make, particularly thinking a lot about writing and the different ways that we might write sculpture. Well, that's really interesting because we're going to come on to that later. You seem to have been pretty busy. 
I mean, you've got a show called Cut, I think, at the AB Projects Gallery in Los Angeles. Yeah. Uh, another exhibition entitled Thought Barefoot at the Anima Mundi in Cornwall. And you've had This Was Now at the Wolverhampton Art Gallery. So there's been quite a lot going on. Yeah, I mean, there's still been things happening. And I guess certainly with the show in LA and in Wolverhampton, there was this big gap in the middle of those shows that wasn't exactly planned, but the work kind of stayed. And then in Wolverhampton, I actually went back and continued making from about August, I think. Right. So you started making when? In in March? I think it was open about two weeks before lockdown. So it had opened and similarly, I guess the one at AB Projects had been open for about a month. And that at the moment is still there, kind of not open to the public, but has yet to be ended. So Anima Monday was the first new show, actually, yeah. Right. Because they're three very different venues, I imagine, mm. uh, and three quite intriguing titles for each exhibition. I take it they all have a meaning. There's a purpose behind those titles. Uh, yeah. And I guess in some ways, each show was kind of really exploring a different kind of aspect in some ways. I think the show at Wolverhampton, this was now, was really focusing on the process of recording. And so I was making the work directly in the gallery space and actually continued adding to that throughout the exhibition. It's quite close to where I live anyway, so I was able to go back and forth. Mm. And simultaneously as I was adding to the work, I'd also invited the public to draw and write in response to what I was making, so to capture the work as it changed really and also to start to maybe understand other people's responses as well as just recording from my own perspective like how can I involve other people's viewpoints in that process which I've not done before so the idea with that show is that the drawings and written records that I've kept from the public I'll now edit those into a book combined with some of my own drawings and that will be a permanent trace of the work within the museum collection there. That's really interesting. Has that thrown up things you weren't expecting, people's response, I wonder? There's always, of course, the worry that will anyone even want to take part or you know like (laughs) that's your first issue and I guess thinking as well of things like permissions you know you invite people but also making sure that you've got the necessary paperwork as well that supports this process to kind of make sure that everyone's clear about what they're taking part in how that will be used Mm. yeah I guess that was kind of developed through discussion with the curators there and sometimes as well It was kind of like an ongoing activity anyone could take part with, but it was also really nice. I had the chance to work with some particular groups that regularly meet at the gallery to kind of spend a bit more time in depth and, you know, to talk to them about the work. And that gave me a chance as well to kind of hear more about their responses and what they were picking up on from the piece. Mm. In terms of the other shows, I'm intrigued. Thought Barefoot, that's a literary reference, is it? Yeah, so it's... um, from a fragment of Sappho and I guess those poems that I kind of return to and I'm really interested in the fact that they are fragmentary Mm. and they give you these glimpses but because of the fragmentary nature it's not necessarily giving everything to you clearly and whole you're piecing things together but also that's maybe more intriguing that you're almost receiving this partial information which kind of allows spaces for your imagination as well you have to forgive my lack of knowledge sappho is a greek poet yeah greek lyric poet right there's often phrases or things that are incredibly beautiful or described in a it's maybe hard to explain but it's 
I guess reading poetry in general as well has been something that for me over the last six months or however has been one of the things that I've found a real solace maybe as well. Mm. Maybe because I haven't had a lot of time, but I can read something for a few minutes and it gives you that space that maybe I can't sit and spend the day reading a book because there's a lot of other things going on. But actually, I've found that a real pleasure and kind of escape maybe as well. Your Instagram page is littered with pictures of poetry, really, isn't it? Which is quite intriguing. Mm -hmm. Is there a relationship, I wonder, between working in clay and writing? Yeah, and I think that's something that's interested me for a long time. And I think in one way, there's this very direct relationship, you know, clay as a material that was first used as a form of writing, you know, thinking about like clay tablets. And I think there's a link in that way, but also thinking about the way that clay is this, on one hand, very neutral substance. When you open the bag, it's just a lump of matter. Mm. But then what you can do with that is you know, start to pull out this kind of very vivid worlds or narratives or fictions, which feels to me a lot like written language. You know, you have black and white words on a page. It's in its material, it's kind of very consistent. But then within that, that kind of opens up this whole other alternative and something that's really immersive as well. And do you write yourself, Phoebe? I know you're doing bits for this book you were talking about. Do you sit regularly and write, I wonder? I mean, I guess I always have, but in a very, again, probably in quite a fragmented way. Like it's not necessarily extended pieces, but I'll often make notes or sometimes it's even just lists or maybe when I start a project, I might think about words that I'm kind of interested in, or maybe it's sometimes this process of I'll maybe write the same word several times as well, sometimes within a list almost like it sifts it to the surface, like what is this actually about or what am I trying to get to? It's increasingly becoming more a part of it. I guess with the show Anima Mundi, I've, it's the first time I've actually shown some fragments of writing as well. Mm. With the show in LA, AB Projects as well, that contained a book. I kind of wrote a fictional memory of a work that I'd made in Leeds at the Tetley and so kind of actually representing a sculptural work as a text um, combined with the atmosphere of the original sculpture. So I created a humid reading room where you would kind of sit and read this text. And I'm really interested in that as well, how you might combine the process of reading with the sensory information. And actually that might give you a more kind of whole impression of what the work could have been like that, you know, it requires your imagination to recreate that. Hmm. The other thing is that I'm intrigued by is your interest in sci-fi. Mm. J.G. Bellard comes up in a number of pieces that I've read about you. So I'm wondering how science fiction influences what it is that you do. Yeah, particularly with Ballard, actually, it was kind of by chance that I read The Drowned World after I'd been to a site visit at the Spode factory for the first ceramics biennial in Stoke. And at that time... Didn't you find it on the floor there or something? Yeah, the factory at that point was still really untouched. So there was a lot of personal belongings mm. and I found a copy of the book and started reading it. And I mean, it kind of felt so connected to the state that the factory was in at that point as well. And I guess it's really rich in visual imagery and kind of imagining an alternative version of reality as well, I guess, is something that often comes through in the work. I mean, I'm kind of creating 
three-dimensional environments that are physical and you can step into, but then also sort of slightly aside from reality as well. They're often not entirely accurate in terms of plants and things. It's kind of like, um, Mm. I guess I see it in that way as being a, a form of science fiction maybe. And also linking that with particularly 18th century design and often that, you know, very fantastical kind of the mutability between sort of nature and ornament. I think decorative ceramics, kind of industrially produced decorative ceramics also has this pairing of material science involved in making. And, you know, they were kind of finding new capabilities in terms of what could be made and then directing that towards creating this very elaborate forms of fiction. Particularly, there was a work that I made at the Tetley in Leeds in 2018, which kind of directly looked more at that. I guess alongside the work that I made, also having a room with a lot of the texts that had informed the work. So there was a number of stories that kind of describe landscapes without colour as well, which is obviously very close to kind of what I'm involved in making as well. Yeah, something that you do. Can we talk about where you work? Because your pieces are often made on site. So do you have a studio? I do. I've not had it for that long. So it's my garage that is half converted. I guess it's still very cold. (laughs) (laughs) It is really helpful to have a space at home. I've particularly found that obviously with what's happened this year. But then a lot of the work is still made on site. It's maybe more that I'll prepare components there or maybe develop test pieces, but then still the bulk of the kind of exhibition work is usually made on site. Mm. I mean, obviously, this podcast is about materials and people's interest or obsession with them. So I'm interested to know why you decided to work in clay in the first instance. Mm. Why was it a material you found yourself so drawn to? Yeah, I mean, I think initially, I mean, the BA that I did was a mixed materials course. So it was three-dimensional crafts at Brighton. And at that point, I knew I wanted to do art. I knew that I loved making things, but I wasn't sure which material. And that was really great for giving me a chance to work with all different materials and, you know, really understand how things are made and what felt right for what I needed or kind of offered me something as well yeah because you grew up in Stafford I mean did you come from an artistic background how come you ended up in Brighton in the first place um yeah I mean I guess I live not that far from Stoke-on-Trent and I don't think growing up I necessarily appreciated that kind of ceramic history as much as I do now (laughs) but certainly I think the Midlands in general um, originally I'm from kind of closer to Birmingham but there's certainly that sense of most of the towns and cities around here have been really defined by materials and making through manufacture. And I guess I didn't necessarily realise that so much until I moved away as well. Often people would be kind of involved with working with a particular material. Yeah, that's something that I find really interesting still. I guess Brighton, I was really just drawn to the course there and the chance to work with different materials because I wasn't sure that it was ceramics it was more that I kind of kept coming back to clay rather than it being an absolute that's absolutely what I want to do it was kind of I just found that um yeah the more that I went on it just became clear that okay yeah it's going to be clay what did your family do Phoebe my dad was a primary school teacher and my mom has always kind of had different admin jobs 
my mum was interested in art and my dad was quite musical, but there's never been any other artists or kind of people working within the arts within my family, really. But I kind of, from a very early age, was always very definite that that's what I wanted to do. I can remember asking my mum, like, how do you be an artist? And she said, you know, you need to go to art school. And I think probably by the time I was about five, I knew that that's what I wanted to do. <laughs> wow, five. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so was there lots of making in your house? Uh, yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I was thinking the other day about, I can remember having a phase of making a lot of jewellery and shoes out of paper that I would sellotape to myself. <laughs> or <laughs> I did used to go to um, a pottery class as well that obviously was maybe where it all began. <laughs> so after Brighton, you went directly to the Royal College of Art. What kind of work were you doing as a student? I mean, I suppose even at Bright and I were starting to think more about, I guess, what you might call installation or not necessarily a sort of self-contained object. And that continued at the Royal College. I began making a series of works in the house where I was living and would kind of set those up and photograph them. But at that time, I was still firing everything. Mm. And I think really it was kind of like I hadn't thought to question that part of ceramics. It was like, that's what you do with clay. And they never tended to be glazed, still had maybe some sense of the raw material, but they, yeah, they were fired. So what was wrong with glaze? Why wouldn't you glaze things? First of all, I was never very good at it. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think often the work have, has been quite involved with like texture and yeah, almost to add colour to that. It's like, felt like this kind of overload of information it was almost too much. So I think I was kind of interested in different aspects of it. And I think even at that time, like as I was making things, often the most exciting point was when I was making them and then it would come out of the kiln and feel a bit like a, a disappointment, like it was, <laughs> yeah, somehow dead again, you know, like the, I think there's so much life in that point when clay is kind of drying and changing. I kind of never quite mm. managed to translate that into the fired work. I guess a key moment in your career seems to have come after you left the Royal College of Art when you were declared bankrupt. This is quite important, it seems to me, because there are loads of graduates leaving university with a lot of debt now. Mm. Um, I hope you don't mind me talking about it, but how did that come about? You were 24 years old at the time, I think, yeah. I'm right in saying. And, you know, I think looking back now, it wasn't even that expensive then compared with how much people have to pay now. But yeah, I'd taken a career development loan to do the MA, which I guess unlike a student loan where, you know, it's kind of related to how much you're earning, you have to, with a career development loan, you have to pay back mm. kind of regardless of whether you've got a job or how much you're earning. So the initial six months or so after I finished, I stayed in London and had two jobs and could just about make enough money to live, but then couldn't afford to repay the loan on top of that. So what were you doing at the time? To begin with, I was working in shops and then I got a job as a technician in a high school it just wasn't enough to cover everything so mm. that was when I decided to declare myself bankrupt which is a huge step to take yeah and I mean I'm so grateful that that was an option in a way yeah you know I really would have been trapped I think in working and struggling with this debt that was kind of unmanageable and certainly wouldn't have been able to then make any work on top of that so yeah it really gave me a lot of freedom but also I think made me kind of forced me to be very 
decisive about how I was going to move forward as well. So after I declared myself bankrupt, I moved back to my parents and, uh, you know, was looking for a job. So making was really, I think, a way of surviving. I kind of felt like I didn't really have anything else. I kind of wasn't prepared to give it up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, how can I still make what I want to make, but in a way that doesn't cost me too much money? So kind of working without a studio, without a kiln, and the things that I did really need, of course, was the clay and the time and space to continue doing that in. So I applied for quite a lot of residencies as a way of just to keep making work, really, and then would work most of the year in other jobs to earn money and then maybe go away for a few months a year to work on a um, project through a residency. And I mean, that really helped me right. to kind of keep making. It sounds like it was a very freeing decision declaring yourself bankrupt, but presumably there's a harder side to this. I mean, borrowing again must be very hard and that kind of thing. Yeah, it is a very formal process you know you go to court and you know swear an oath and hand over all your bank cards and yeah it was kind of a strange thing to go through and certainly yeah has an impact for a long time but you know I guess in my case I didn't own any property or have children or you know mm. it kind of made sense for my situation at that time it was the the best option really I think so you're doing this new kind of work that's almost being forced on you, I guess, using raw clay that you can recycle as well, which I think is probably important. Yeah. Your first residency was at Bulwick Hall in Norfolk, yeah. I believe. How did you feel on the first day when you turned up there doing this stuff that you've never done before, a whole new kind of way of working? Yeah, I guess it was you know, a slight apprehension. Like it was kind of the first proper project I'd done after college as well. And, you know, you kind of feel like, oh, what am I going to do? What if I can't think of anything to do? Like, you know, it was, a, it was quite a short residency. It was three weeks, I think. So it was still unknown, but then very quickly, of course, there's things that interest you and you start making. And yeah, I realized how freeing this way of working was as well that I, with that residency, there wasn't any particular ceramic facilities there. I just had the clay and the time. And yeah, I guess it really confirmed that actually, yeah, this is a way I can work and it's a way that's a really sort of stimulating way to work. And it kind of, you know, opened up all these possibilities and certainly the scale I could work as well, that I wasn't limited to what could fit in a kiln and could be a lot rougher than if you want things to survive firing. You know, it didn't matter if I've got air bubbles or like how solid the clay is. Mm. One of the pieces I made there was underwater and kind of allowing it to dissolve. So really becoming much more interested in the kind of agency of the material in the work. And yeah, I guess using the environment and the site as kind of part of the material that I work with as well. Mm. You say it's freeing. I mean, did it never bother you that these things wouldn't last? The ephemeral nature of everything that you do or most things that you do. Do you never look at something and go, Oh, I wish I could keep that. Not yet. <laughs> um, and I think certainly at that point, I was just, you know, I just wanted the clay. <laughs> as soon as I've made something, I want to make something yeah. else. <laughs> and I think it lifts this huge burden as well that like, if something's sticking around, you really feel like you've got to get it right. Whereas this maybe gave me that feeling of like, oh yeah, but it's only temporary. So I can just try this. It doesn't matter if it doesn't quite work out, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Can we talk a bit about your process and how you go about making these, you know, extraordinary ornamental pieces? What's your starting point? I think usually there's a plan. 
particularly with the larger work, I have to plan more carefully because I might need armatures to kind of structure the work around. And then usually the first stage is kind of building up some solid structure of clay as well. So that initial form is actually usually very rough and very, yeah, quite a solid thing before the details added. And then usually working mostly with my hands. So things often are just pressed out on my palm using fingertips and then sometimes also working with sprig molds so often I'll use I'll kind of create a clay model and then pour the plaster mold from my model and then that allows me to kind of press out lots of the same pieces which I guess particularly if I'm working with maybe a more ornamental design as well that that allows me to kind of reproduce those patterns and then build them up into flowers or plants And in terms of inspiration, I mean, we've talked about literature and and science fiction, but obviously nature must Mm. play a key role in your work. When did the interest in nature occur? Certainly, I guess an interest in nature has always been there. And I think maybe that's partly from growing up in quite a post-industrial landscape and almost this real craving for nature and maybe beauty to some extent as well. Like a lot of what I saw around me wasn't that. So I was kind of always fascinated by plants. Within the work, I guess there'd always been maybe an interest in nature and landscape, sometimes more abstract, sometimes it was kind of more obvious. And then that became really a particular focus of the work that I made at the residency at the V&A, thinking more in depth about that and sort of how landscape and nature had been represented historically in objects in the collection then kind of thinking a lot about this relationship between nature and design and you know that's something which is ongoing really and I guess that human desire often to interpret nature to sort of almost make it more than it is as well to kind of reorder it or um, amplify its beauty as well through design and that's coupled with kind of observing nature and these cycles which relate so much to human existence and things I guess as well. The V&A residency seems quite pivotal in your career, I think. It certainly had a profound impact on the work that you did for the Women's Hour Craft Prize show for which you won the £10,000 award. What effect did it have on you, the V&A? It was huge, actually. I think looking back to it was the beginning of so many different projects that have come out since like it's still continuing to inform things I think Mm. it wasn't necessarily what I made while I was there but more the connections and things I started to think about I think just being immersed in this collection of objects for that length of time was so much and kind of has sort of continued to feed how I think really so I think it was really yeah really changed a lot of things particularly thinking about performance as well and that really began there and actually I think maybe the first flowers that I ever made were at the V&A I don't think I'd made a flower before then so yeah there's in so many ways it's affected what I've done since Mm. this nature of performance or notion of performance is really interesting in the way that you work because the pieces are performing and they're decaying themselves and certainly some of them are deliberately decaying you run water through them occasionally But you also perform occasionally. I mean, you make in front of the public. Is that something you're comfortable with? I guess I never see that part as performance in a way. It's necessary for me to make the work. But obviously, because I am there and there's sometimes an audience, of course, it's very closely to performance. But Mm. I guess I'm particularly interested in 
the way the material and the object performs is kind of my real interest and I guess something that I think for a long time the work was much more static and then it's something that I've kind of tried to think about much more and you know maybe controlling the environments that the work exists in or like you say adding water so that there's this ongoing progression in the work during the time that it's shown as well and I think everything whatever the work is it is always durational even if it's very subtle there's always some changes there you know it's never completely static and mm. fixed I'm intrigued that your partner Tim Murley is a, a scenic painter in the theatre his work is temporary but also performative as well which there are distinct parallels yeah I think they are very close in a way and the fact in theatre you have a whole team of people that might work for months to produce a set that's really for a particular moment and might run only for a couple of weeks. There's a huge amount of craftsmanship and making that goes into that. And I think also it's interesting the way we understand these things differently. Like, you know, I often get questioned about the loss of the object and if I'm sad about that. And whereas in theatre, I don't think they would ever be asked that question, you know, the set after the run mm. is usually either recycled or thrown away. And, you know, there's this acceptance that that's how it operates and you enjoy it and it is what it is that uh, is kind of a different expectation to that that we have of objects. But also is obviously a different economic model. And it seems to me that in some ways you've taken really quite a hard route. Yeah. <laughs> you haven't been creating objects that people can collect. But I noticed that people can buy your work at the Anima Mundi Gallery. You're working porcelain there as well. Does that signify a change of direction? Yeah, I mean, I guess largely the work that I've made has been commissioned through public museums or galleries on the understanding that it is for a fixed period of time. So the works in the exhibition at Anima Mundi, I guess there are a few smaller scale pieces that they're still from raw clay, but some are also dipped in wax. So they're a little bit stronger and yeah, they're still very fragile, but mainly because of their scale, I guess they can be moved and it's kind of possible for them to be kept. You know, I'm not necessarily against the work lasting for a longer period of time. I mean, usually it's been fairly brief because the work then has to be moved. What's really important that I think I won't compromise on, though, is the material qualities of the work and that sense, even if it is left untouched in a particular place but you can still sense that fragility and the kind of fact that it does demand care if you want to keep it, it comes with a responsibility i think mm, that's interesting i mean generally you use stoneware yeah. for your work and you're using porcelain here i mean what are the difference between working in the two different types of clay i find porcelain a nightmare generally <laughs> <laughs> why is that it's much harder it's just so much harder to work with. Um, and there are still stoneware pieces in this show, I should say. I mean, it's been interesting as well when I've worked abroad, often I'll work with local clays to wherever I am. So last year in Turkey, there was kinds of clays that I'd never worked with before. So it can be very different to handle. And in that case, there's certain details that I could only do with certain of the clay bodies because there wasn't maybe the flexibility or yeah, the, it would crack too much. But it also is really nice that that adds into the work, that there's something local to where it is made as well. But yeah, I think often I use stoneware 
because it's very easy to work with and also really cheap. So particularly if I'm doing a large scale work, it makes the most sense to work with that. And also I do really like the gray color of stoneware clays. It's almost like a non-color, I think of that. It's, yeah, it's almost like the color's absent rather than just being the color of clay as well, if that makes sense. <laughs> mm. Mm. And what happens to the clay after it's been used, Phoebe? Do you take it away with you or does it get donated or what happens to this raw clay? It kind of varies. So if possible, I'll recycle the clay, which, you know, in this country is usually possible. Sometimes, depending on where I am, there might be people there that can recycle it. So the piece that I made in Hawaii, they recycled in the ceramics department there for the students then to use but then other times yeah it does get thrown away that's too much work to try and reclaim that so it's certainly mm. kind of more enjoyable i think when it can be remade well i was going to ask did you get to see what the hawaii students made with no, the clay that you donated I didn't to them? actually yeah maybe i should send an email and find that out <laughs> well if they're listening in hawaii now then let's find yeah. out what happened to it <laughs> I was watching a little film that you have on your Instagram page of probably you, I think, cutting a piece as you were dismantling it, I'm guessing, cutting a piece with a knife. Mm. Do you think there's something melancholic about your work, the, the slow decay over time or the notion that this thing is going to be destroyed, whatever happens? Mm. And the words memento mori are often used when people come to describe some of the pieces that you've created. Even before the work is taken apart, I think that's always kind of there, really, that there is this sense that it's on the brink of loss and there's this melancholy or sad beauty to that as well and, and something that's very human and we identify with. And I think in terms of that process of breaking down the work, like sometimes with the fountain, it's kind of the work is doing it for me. It's kind of breaking down itself or sometimes... Mm. It can be maybe a gentler process or sometimes it can be kind of brutal or require quite a bit of force as well. That changes. So the piece you're talking about with the cutting, in a way that was quite, yeah, maybe a slightly brutal way to have to take that apart. And other pieces like the work that I made in Istanbul uh, onto a pulley that was a single cut to the rope. The whole thing fell in about one second. So yeah, that kind of process feels different depending on how it needs to be taken apart as well does the work reflect you phoebe are you kind of a bit melancholic i wonder yeah probably <laughs> <laughs> yeah i don't know I, it's kind of something that i sometimes feel that whatever i end up making turns out slightly melancholic and a bit gothic <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah i mean i guess there, there's certainly part of me in it in a way and i think uh Maybe I'm drawn to this kind of combination as well of the delicacy, but also the kind of something that's maybe raw and a, and a bit tougher than it appears as well. That kind of interests me. Yeah, I can see that. I can see that. I've taken up loads of your time. It's a standard final question. This is kind of difficult to know at this moment in time, I suppose. But plans for the future, Phoebe, what can we expect from you? I won't be stopping making. <laughs> But yeah, everything else is kind of uncertain at the moment. Yeah, it's strange to not have any definite projects on the horizon, really. But I'm certainly thinking about a lot of things and beginning to think in slightly different ways as well. And I guess trying to make the most of this time to actually stop a little bit as well and maybe question what I'm doing is really helpful. Hopefully there'll there'll be new things to see. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this has opened a huge can of worms, Phoebe. What, what are you thinking about at the moment? Then 
you know, I've started to touch on recently, the more I go into thinking about the recording, it's like the work is starting to move into other forms. So, you know, like it exists as text, it exists as a sensory environment, you know, thinking about the humidity and, okay, that's not clay anymore. So it's like, where is this boundary of ceramics as well? Like, because ceramics has completely informed how I think the way that I write is part of a ceramic practice. So is that still ceramics? Even if the clay isn't there, it's kind of something I'm testing out that boundary maybe. Um, Also been thinking a lot about sound as well and yeah, potential collaboration, I guess, and parallels, maybe picking up again on this sort of moving away from the visual, but the kind of um, other kinds of Maybe music to me feels very sculptural and I also kind of have this sense when I'm making things that I kind of hear them, that I, like with textures, I sort of associate a pitch with them. So in some ways when I'm making a larger piece, it's quite instinctive, like I have a loose plan, but I don't plan everything and I'm kind of waiting to hear, I kind of hear when that's finished or so kind of beginning to explore that a little bit more as well. But yes, we shall see. Well, I'm massively intrigued. I literally can't wait for lockdown to finish now (laughs) to see what you come up with. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it, Phoebe. Oh, thanks so much. To discover more about Phoebe's work, go to phoebecummings.com. There are images from the interviews as well as little films and other things on my Instagram page, Grant on Design. And I have a new website. You can find all the podcasts that I've done, sign up to my newsletter and lots of other stuff on grantondesign.com. If you've enjoyed listening and want to see this podcast flourish, then please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this from. And if you feel so inclined, you can go on to my Patreon page and make a pledge at patreon.com forward slash material matters. You'll be helping to take the message, the importance of materials, skill, craft and design to a whole new audience. Thanks so much for listening and please stay safe and well.